Hey, I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. This week, I'm joined by Sonia Lichtman of International Federated Hermes to talk about nature-related impacts and dependencies, and what is COP15. We can think of companies and investors' relationship with nature in terms of the impacts and the dependencies. The reality is that all life on Earth and all businesses to varying degrees depend on biodiversity and ecosystem services. Now we know from influential reports like the Dasgupta Review that the economy is actually deeply embedded in nature. So the drastic decline in biodiversity, that's exposing companies and their investors to many risks. Hello and welcome to episode eight of Financing Nature. I hope you're all well. Um, This week, Sonia Lichtman of International Federated Hermes is joining us to talk about why biodiversity impacts and risks are of increasing importance to investors and what that means for companies and certain sectors in particular. Uh, She's also going to share with us about COP15 and the role that the finance sector can play in helping set these global biodiversity targets that will be decided there. So let's get her in. So welcome, Sonia. It's so lovely to have you here. How are you doing? Hello, Helen. It's great to be with you today. I'm well, thanks. Good. So we're delighted to have you with us today, Sonia, for a bit of a different angle into how we mobilise finance at scale towards nature restoration. And that is, how do we get companies to reduce their harm to nature and invest in nature restoration, essentially becoming nature positive? And maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. And how can the finance sector support that process? But first of all, I think it would be really great if you could provide us a little background on Federated Hermes and your work there. Sure. So the international business of Federated Hermes is a London-based asset manager. We also have a large stewardship team that's EOS at Federated Hermes, which is where I sit within the business. And the idea is that if you are a long-term investor, You also have a responsibility to look after the companies you're invested in. That's why stewardship is often called active ownership. And in my role, we engage, we influence and support companies to make those changes across a wide range of of social and, and environmental issues that are material to the business. We're currently engaging on behalf of 1.6 trillion US dollars. That's internal assets but also a large number of external stewardship clients, so pension funds and other institutional investors, and they are naturally long-term. And I can tell you that biodiversity is rapidly rising up the agenda. Oh, well, getting straight into that then, um, why is it rising rapidly up the agenda? Why is it so important for investors? Um, what's, What's the business case there? So we can think of companies and investors' relationship with nature in terms of the impacts and the dependencies. That's to say that companies across many sectors are already having a major impact on ecosystems, maybe through their operations or or indirectly through their supply chains. And at the same time, the reality is that all life on Earth and all businesses to varying degrees, degrees depend on biodiversity and ecosystem services for their long-term success. So you can think of 
ingredients and inputs sourced directly from from nature or the healthy soils required to grow crops. It might be reliable water flow um, and, and many other benefits that are derived from nature. So for a long time, companies and investors have largely assumed that um, you know they exist separately from nature. And so biodiversity just hasn't been factored in to the picture. Now we know from influential reports like the Desgupta Review that the economy is actually deeply embedded in nature. So the drastic decline in biodiversity I'm sure you've heard the figures, but it's, you know, one million species at risk and the rate of extinction further increasing. That's exposing companies and their investors to many risks. So risks to supply capacity, regulatory risks um, and reputational risks. And actually, the, the decline of biodiversity poses a systemic risk to the financial system and the economy as a whole. So I, I think you'll agree that it is clearly an issue that deserves attention from from investors and from companies. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that it is rising on on their agenda. And also, you know, excited to hear about the the stewardship and engagement work that you're doing. Are there any sectors in particular that investors and and yourselves or yourself in in your role are focused on? Yeah, that there are some sectors where it makes sense to start. A lot of sectors need to significantly reduce their contribution to biodiversity loss. So mining, utilities, oil and gas, agrochemicals, construction, there are lots of them. But one of the sectors that I think is it's really interesting is anything related to food and beverage. So that could be manufacturing or, or retailers. And that's because both of the impacts and the dependencies of that sector are really high. We know from um, the influential scientific report that came out in, in 2019, the IPBES report, that there are five main drivers of biodiversity loss. They are land use and sea use change, direct exploitation of species, climate change, pollution, and invasive alien species. And companies across all sectors have to reduce their contribution to these drivers of biodiversity loss. For food and beverage companies, you know, there are lots of the impacts there. So the companies generally have long agricultural supply chains, so a lot of land use. Mm. Um, and that land use is competing with habitats for wild species, you know, often links to, to deforestation from their sourcing activities. There are also high carbon emissions and, you know, a, a high contribution to climate change, especially in the supply chain and through the methane emissions associated with with livestock and uh, you know that to add to the list there's also pollution in the form of chemical runoff and packaging waste and so the list goes on so there's a lot of innovation and transformation that has to happen in the food sector and all of that of course whilst feeding a growing population and, and making diets healthier that's really interesting so many sectors as we know um, food and beverage obviously a hot sector are there any examples you can give of um, do no harm for the food and beverage sector? Sure. So there's a lot of excitement about nature positive, And we also hope that that's where the economy goes eventually. But first, the focus has to be on reducing the, the widespread negative impacts. It starts with companies identifying, assessing and measuring 
that both the impacts and the dependencies. So that's why we're really looking forward to the TNFD and the role that it can play in providing guidance on how to do that sort of um, measurement and, and disclosure most effectively. You know, once that assessment is in place, that's what should inform companies' interventions. It might be sourcing from a particular region that's a biodiversity hotspot or a particular high-risk commodity um, or, or a particular part of the production process. And when deploying strategies for reversing biodiversity loss, companies should follow something called the mitigation hierarchy. So in the first instance, that means avoiding and reducing negative impacts before even turning to the, the sort of positive um, side. So for the, for the food sector, which we're talking about here, that's likely to include improving oversight of the supply chain and sourcing practices, because that's really where a lot of the impacts and where a lot of the change has to happen. They're concentrated in the supply chain. It might mean supporting the transition to regenerative agriculture, something we hear more and more about these days, and also reducing the use of pesticides and fertilizers, which are uh, having a really negative impact on biodiversity through, um, through pollution of, of soils and water bodies. It could mean developing a sustainable protein strategy. Mm. Um, we know that the same calorie and protein content, um, beef and lamb actually require 100 times more land compared to plant-based ingredients. So 100 times um, you know, less land we could be using if we make that shift to plant-based proteins. Mm. So you know, there's a lot that can be done. And of course, it will depend on the, the specific company and its circumstances, um, but absolutely start with reducing the, the negative impacts. So as you say, that's sort of the impact side. And it feels like there's been quite a lot of attention on that, um, particularly because there's, you know, there's a large environmental case. So the ENGOs talk a lot about the negative impacts that companies have on land or marine. Um, but it feels a bit like the dependency part seems to have had a little less attention. And yet, you know, we're really interested at the Institute about how you start to mobilize investment into nature. And it feels like it's almost through highlighting that dependency, that business case, that you might start to get investment moving into nature restoration, um, chiefly because companies might sort of understand, well, I'm dependent on, you know, these these water bodies and therefore I need to sort of invest in their restoration. Um, and therefore we might be able to fulfill this nature positive ambition um, of like do no harm and do positive. Any thoughts about that part? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think you're absolutely right. So both companies and investors need to look a lot more closely at the dependencies. And as you say, when a sector or business depends directly on nature, the business case for investing in that protection and restoration is, is really, really strong. We've come a long way in recognising that nature isn't just an inexhaustible and free resource, but I think much more can be done to get that message across. And with that message comes the fact that companies and investors need to take greater responsibility for both the protection and the restoration side. Mm. And then, as you mentioned earlier, it's, you know, it is a systemic risk that we're facing that's not always clear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before we move on to the bigger picture, which I'm quite excited about, about COP15, um, can you just share with us how Federated Hermes engages with these companies? So about this time last year, we published a white paper called Our Commitment to Nature. In that paper, we called on companies to commit to having a net positive 
impact on biodiversity throughout their operations and supply chains by 2030 at the latest. We also explained why the issue is so critical for companies and their investors, much like we're, we're doing today. And we outlined a five pillar framework for engaging on biodiversity, covering governance, measurement, targets, strategy and disclosure, you know, all things that that you've heard about before, um, but trying to explain how these relate to to biodiversity and um, what we expect there. And I think it's important to say that for us, good governance really underpins success in, in other areas. And actually, we think that directors, board directors of companies will increasingly be held accountable um, if you know we see that a company is ignoring um, is ignoring biodiversity and contributing to, to biodiversity loss, just as we're seeing when it comes to climate change. So moving on, while you're here with us, we really wanted to ask you about COP15. Um, I think a lot of people hear about it, but still not quite sure what goes on at COP15. Like COP26 was sort of a very clear message. We all know what was going to happen. Um, COP15 is, is a bit more elusive, I suppose, or <laughs> we just don't know as much about it. So you co-chair, or at least I don't, I can't speak for everyone. So you co-chair several working groups for the Finance for Biodiversity Pledge that has an eye on bringing a finance voice to COP15, and we'll come to that pledge in a moment. But it'd be great, as I say, for those listening and me to better understand, you know, what, uh, when is COP15, what are the aims? So just going back a little bit before COP15, in 1992, there were three Rio conventions. They were internationally agreed. So one was on climate change. That's the UNF C process that we know today that led to COP26 and all the other ones. There was one on desertification and one on biodiversity. So this third convention, the Convention on Biological Diversity, or the CBD, um, as it's called, that's the body that's organising COP15. Hmm. So it's an international meeting of parties, very similar to COP26, but this time to discuss biodiversity. And the, the overarching goal is to agree on a global biodiversity framework that will take us up to, to 2030. So the framework will have goals and targets that are agreed internationally, but then will be implemented at the national and regional levels. So the, this process operates in 10-year cycles. So it's not new. We've already had um, a, a set of global targets in place. Between 2010 and 2020, they were the so-called Aichi targets. Mm. But unfortunately, we now know that all of those targets were missed. And there was very limited engagement from the private sector. So COP15 is our collective chance to to change that, to come up with the next cycle of, of biodiversity targets and increase that engagement from the private sector. So it's really important. Um, and when, I mean, I know it was delayed because of the pandemic. So do you know sort of what the timeline is for, for COP15? Yeah, as you say, it's it's been pushed back several times, but we are really hope, hopeful that it will go ahead in 2022. The next set of negotiations is in Geneva in March, but we don't yet know the exact dates for COP15. Right. Okay. You mentioned 
um, biodiversity targets there that are going to be set during the CBD. So just are, are there any in particular that you know of um, that the business sector or the finance sector should be looking out for? Yeah, so at the moment, there is a, a draft global biodiversity framework out there. And that's the thing that's going to be negotiated. Um, and there are 21 action targets um, for 2030 that are that are being discussed. So the ones that we've been looking at most closely are target 14 and target 15. So target 14 is um, about having the right policies and regulations in place um, and also introduces this concept of financial flows, which um, obviously we're very interested in as, as the financial sector. Yeah. And then target 15 is all about businesses. So asking businesses to um, to disclose their dependencies and impacts on biodiversity, to reduce those negative impacts. So again, the, the things that we've been talking about today, and while the, the language itself is still being negotiated, um, there are targets that in there that will be relevant for the private sector. So this feels like it's going to be hugely influential and yet probably hasn't had the same drumbeat around it that COP26 had. And maybe that's, you know, as we talked about, because it has been delayed so many times. Um, but also it felt like in COP26, the financial sector played such a hugely influential role. Um, and it does feel like to a lesser extent that's happening with COP15, although you just mentioned one of the targets is about um, financial flows. Why do you think there is a difference with biodiversity and climate. Why hasn't there been more engagement with the finance sector? And, and, and you know, why is it important that they play a role? Yeah, of, of course, a lot of the focus has been on climate change and engagement with COP26. Uh, and that's brilliant. In the Paris Agreement from Article 2C, we have this concept of making financial flows consistent with reducing emissions and, and the Paris Agreement. And that has translated into many financial institutions committing to net zero. You know, we had 130 trillion US dollars by COP26 committed to net zero. So financial institutions are, are now working out what Paris alignment looks like in their portfolios and financing activities. That's amazing. Mm. And given the risk that biodiversity loss poses to investors and the broader economy, as, as we've talked about, it's really important that we have the same level of engagement with COP15 and the upcoming global biodiversity framework. We've been actively trying to contribute to the international negotiations and, and influence the outcome of COP15 in collaboration with peers. And we're doing so primarily through the Finance for Biodiversity Foundation, um, which is now an observer to the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity that means that it can make statements and make specific text suggestions on, on the draft framework, and they will be considered um, if they get su supported by a party to the convention, so, um, you know, a government or a regional um, government representative. So some of the things that we're asking for is to really emphasise this concept of aligning public and private financial flows to the goals and targets of the global biodiversity framework. We want that to be explicitly included in the text to give the financial sector that impetus for action like we've had from the Paris Agreement. We're actually just about to launch a position paper that explains the importance of aligning these financial flows. And the idea is that, of course, we need to increase financing for nature, but we also need to reverse all of the existing financial flows 
that are currently enabling activities that are destroying mm. nature. So that's where financial institutions can can play a huge role through capital allocation, through stewardship, through lending decisions. You know, that's that's where the juicy action is. Right. And then coming back to that point, what's it why would they will you just keep making the business case that there's, you know, risk risk on their books, risk in the system if they don't they don't do this. You mentioned the Finance for Biodiversity Foundation there. Can you tell us more about the Finance for Biodiversity pledge? Yeah, of course. So the pledge has an overarching goal to reverse nature loss in this decade. And the signatories are a community of financial institutions that want to play an active role in contributing towards that goal. So we signed the um, Finance for Biodiversity Pledge as the International Business of Federated Hermes back in December 2020. And that has committed us to doing five things by 2024 at the latest, um, collaborating and sharing knowledge, engaging with companies, measuring the impacts, um, setting targets and reporting publicly on, on progress. So we'd absolutely welcome others in the financial sector to join us. Indeed, let's try and get that to happen. How, just out of interest, how many do you know how many um, roughly organisations have joined that pledge so far? From memory, it's 84 financial institutions at the moment, but it's it's growing quite rapidly. Um, so the, the interest and the understanding of, of the importance of financial sector action and the relevance of biodiversity to finance is really increasing. Fantastic. And it sounds like that group also has such an influential role on um, COP15 itself. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant to get the financial sector voice represented in COP15. As I say, that wasn't the case for the for the last set of targets. And that mm. might be part of the reason why um, those targets weren't met. So it's it's really great to have the financial sector voice represented this time around. Oh, well, let's, um, yeah, let's, let's try and get some more on board. And um, thank you for, for doing your part and join, joining that pledge and spearheading this movement. It's so important. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today, Sonia, and, and sharing about the importance of biodiversity investors and, uh, and why we all should all be more aware of COP15. Before you go, um, any sort of final thoughts on kind of the steps that the financial sector or even the corporate sector should be taking when it comes to biodiversity at the moment? Okay, so I think for companies, let's start simple. You know, work out where the business is currently interacting with nature and where there are opportunities to reduce negative impacts and make a positive contribution to nature. So that's that's for companies. For investors, I think we need to raise the issue in conversations with boards and management teams to show that we're paying attention to biodiversity and that we expect greater ambition when it comes to reversing nature loss. We need collaboration because no single company or financial institution can do this alone. And as with anything, we need bold leadership bold leadership that is a, a wonderful rallying cry to end on um and thank you so much Sonia for all your time today it's been uh, really wonderful having you on and good luck with um the rest of the year leading up to what we hope will be COP15 this year not next but you never know um and look forward to sort of following the work you're doing at Federated Hermes thanks so much for having me Helen it's been a real pleasure talking to you So that's all from us at Financing Nature this week. We missed last week due to an illness, but 
Next week, we're back on track and I'll be joined by Dorothy Hare of the Blue Natural Capital Finance Facility to talk about oceans and marine investments. So really looking forward to that as I think there are some learnings for the UK from that facility. Um, Until then, don't forget to check out GFI Hive if you haven't already and sign up to our monthly newsletter. You can do that at greenfinanceinstitute.co.uk forward slash GFI Hive. And so all that remains for me to say today is thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. Thank you to our Financing Nature funder, the Esme Fairbairn Foundation, and to our podcast editor extraordinaire, Robin Leeburn of Fairly Media. See you next week.